So for the last many, many weeks here at Grassroots, we've been talking about prayer. Um, Basically in a prayer challenge, a year of going through the discipline of prayer in hopes that as you would experience the worship time, the sermons, that your prayer life would grow, would deepen, that you would grow the desires and the attitudes that build a prayer life just a little more in your life and as a community, as that all comes together, as a community, we would grow in our desire, our hope, and prayer, and our ability to pray. And so we are in a year of this, working on this as individuals and as a group. And if, if you feel like this particular sermon feels like a conclusion of sorts, you'll be right, because I've been preaching on this since September, and uh, I've just finished off today, or finishing off the first uh, kind of segment, which focuses in or has focused in on the desires to pray and our attitudes in prayer. And, and those two things I've been talking about over and over again as the foundations. If our desires for prayer and our attitudes for prayer aren't, aren't set in kind of a proper posture, then we can try uh, having all the right words. We can try praying uh, all the right things and it will kind of fall flat. So we've been, we've been working on that. And if, you've, this is, if you're just jumping in, I mean, all of these sermons are on the internet on our website, so you can catch up if you want. But um, I've been just trying at, at different points to catch up new folks. So don't feel like you have to go back and listen to this, like 70 sermons or whatever uh, to catch up into this. You'll be fine. I'll, I'll catch you up. Um, but this, this conclusion to our first part on, on praying, I've been using a bunch of different metaphors to help us think through where we're going and the geography of, of prayer, so to speak. Uh, and so what we've been kind of entering in through the right door of prayer, which is humility, which is recognizing that we're needy and that we don't have it all together and recognizing that God is a powerful king. And once we get those two things set in place, the prayer life begins it gets going because we know we, we're, we're in need. We don't have it all put together. And that, that God is not a person we can demand things of and hope that, uh, that he'll do whatever our bidding is. And so uh, this, this is the end of that. Uh, and I'm going to finish off. This is, so I began kind of this, this work last week. We've got into this, this attitude of prayer, this door, so to speak. And now we've entered into this kind of cave and imagine this cave, it's kind of an Indiana Jones kind of cave. And it's got a, like a little pathway leading up to a doorway. And on the pathway, there's a number of obstacles. And once you get through the doorway, you've entered into the school of prayer. This is where you go in and you find out how to pray. What are the right words? What, what, are, what are the right ways to, um, to, to begin praying to God? How, how do we pray? Why are we praying? All the things that solidify life of prayer. And we're going to enter into that in the new year. I'm going to teach you the hows and the whats and the whys and all of that. Uh, but in the meantime, you've got to get past, you've got to get, you know, past this set of obstacles to get there. And uh, the greatest obstacles are some of the hardest questions uh, and the questions that kind of go, does prayer even matter? Does it work? Does God, can God hear our prayers? Can we change his mind? Um, because if God hears prayers, can he hear my prayers, little old me? Um, and so these are the hardest questions that we have to get over um, before we have our attitudes and, and hopes set on prayer. Let's just keep walking into this here. Um, and so basically, uh, last week, if you want a two-minute two recap of where we've been, we've been in Psalm 107 asking these big questions. 
We've talk, Psalm 107 gives us four scenarios about prayers that, uh, that people pray that matter, that God hears and answers. And uh, we've been talking about the fact that prayer matters. Um, the prayers of the greats, the, the greatest social activists, the greatest people who've made the biggest difference in the world. Think of like a Mother Teresa or a Desmond Tutu or a Martin Luther King. Their lives were, their lives were built around prayer. Uh, prayer is not a formula, as we've been talking about. It takes humility. And with prayer, it's just an experiential thing. More coincidences seem to happen. And we get into this gray space because we're scientific-minded people, and we, we, um, we, we want to be able to say uh, a, a plus B equals C, or however the formulas go. Prayer doesn't work like that, but the, the experience of people who pray, and pray actively, will, will testify that somehow more coincidences seem to happen when praying happens. And that, um, that's supposed to be the word partnership. That's close enough, you can get it. Um, that partnership is the basis of, of the prayer life. The fact that, that God is the greater of two partners in an endeavor, in a mission. And so, uh, the much greater partner, but he still gives us part of the job to do. How, why, however he does that, why he does that, it's beyond us. But it's not like God is up there just running the show. He's given us a piece of the work to do. And once we can get that in our mind, um, we, we recognize that prayer matters. Praying actively matters. And so um, that was the recap of last week. But I wanted to jump straight in from, from where I left off with this question about does prayer matter. And uh, I'm going to read a little um, quote here or a little section here from Philip Yancey's book on prayer. It's a gem of a book on prayer uh, written in the last you know, 20, 20 years. I'd recommend it. Um, but in this question of prayer mattering, he talks about um, a chance t- that he had to get to know Desmond Tutu a little bit and talk about his work in South Africa. So here we go. I'm going to read a, a chunk out of this chapter. Uh, chapter 9, what difference does prayer make? Does prayer make a difference in world events? Switch scenes to South Africa. In the early 1990s, everyone knew South Africa's racist government would have to change. But most observers expected massive bloodshed to accompany that change. I know a man there named Ray McCauley, a Pentecostal preacher with a fascinating story and an imposing physical presence. He competed against Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Mr. Universe contest. In the final days of the apartheid regime, the emerging black leadership of Nelson Mandela and Bishop Desmond Tutu courted Ray, no doubt because his weekly television audience represented a large constituency. One day Mandela called on Ray for help. 45 black people had been murdered in a township, and Ray went with Bishop Tutu to visit and comfort the families. A week later, the two returned to attend the funeral service at a sports ground filled with 15,000 people. As the service came to an end, anger surged through the crowd like a current of electricity. Impromptu speakers called for them to march together in mass and get their revenge. Ray noticed with some nervousness that he was the only white person present in the volatile crowd. Bishop Tutu turned to him and said, Ray, don't worry, I'll take care of these marchers. Ray recalls, I then saw one of the most moving scenes of my life. Desmond Tutu stood before the crowd of 15,000, motioned for silence, and in his high-pitched, melodic voice, he began to speak. 
I am your bishop, appointed by God. Yes, that's right, preach it. I have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. You got it, yes, amen, came the crowd. And yet, do you see that police dog over there? That dog can go on beaches in South Africa that would not tolerate my presence. The crowd exploded. They were cheering and stomping and waving handkerchiefs. Tutu kept building momentum. He had them eating out of his hand. Then the most extraordinary thing happened. In the next 30 minutes, nothing but, using nothing but words, the rod of his mouth, this great man of God silenced the crowd, brought peace to that powerful powder keg scene, and closed in prayer. And 15,000 demonstrators, many of whom were out for blood, simply turned around and walked home. After the changeover in South Africa, Bishop Desmond Tutu found that his work had just begun. He accepted the arduous assignment of presiding over the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings of South Africa. The horror stories knew no end. He heard gruesome accounts of beatings and electric shock torture and the abuse of pregnant women and all sorts of other things. Day after day for nearly two years, he listened to stories of deeds from hell, acted out on his own country. In the midst of that time, a reporter asked him, why do you pray? Here's what he said. If your day starts off wrong, it stays skewed. What I've found is that getting up a little earlier and trying to have an hour of quiet in the presence of God, mulling over some scripture, supports me. I try to have two three hours of quiet per day. And even when I exercise, when I go on the treadmill for 30 minutes, I use that time for intercession. I try to have a map in my mind of the world. And I go around the world, continent by continent. Only Africa, I try to do a little more detail and offer all of that to God. Then he would put on his judicial robes and take his seat before a commission that tried to bring truth and reconciliation to a morally stained land. The musician Bono once asked Tutu how he managed to find time for prayer and meditation. And Tutu replied, what are you talking about? Do you think we'd be able to do any of this stuff if we didn't? Friends, prayer matters. Uh, it doesn't work. I don't like saying like prayer works because that gives us a sense we're back into that mold of if we say the right things and convince God the right way and push him the right way, he's, we're going to get everything we want. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking the, about the recognition that we have a job to do on this earth, to co-work with God. And a huge tool that he gives us in that is prayer. And prayer matters as, as uh, some of the greats testify. And this book is filled with more of those kind of stories. Um, and so here we are, that was the book. And so here we are, as a community, we've gone, we've gone through so much so far um, to talk about prayer, but here we are standing at this entrance, entrance way to the school of prayer. And to get, keep on going, to enter into that space, we need the Psalms and we need Jesus. So here's what I mean. We're going we're gonna to get into the Psalms. I'm going to, to talk a little bit about Jesus' life of prayer today to help us finally get over this hurdle of asking the question, does prayer matter? So we can enter as a community into this doorway. So Psalm 107 continued. Started Psalm 107 last week. Uh, if you feel like, wow, Keith, you jumped in quite quick. I did. I was, I'm continuing last week's sermon. So listen to last week's if you want the whole picture here. 
So Psalm 107 continued. At the end of Psalm 107, after the psalmist gives us these four different um, uh, vignettes of prayer working in, in um, tragic scenarios almost, you could say, uh, Psalm 107 continues on and finishes off with this. God has the back totally of the troubled, the oppressed and the sorrowful. Princes who are wicked, people who are wicked, they wander lost in the desert. This is, this is the points, these two points the psalmist is making to conclude the psalm about praying and the importance of prayer. Um, and as, as I've been saying about humility and about recognizing God's character, that if you're troubled, if you're sorrowful, if you feel low and needy, somehow you've entered closer into the presence of God. And if you act wickedly, if you... Uh, a person who, who tends to act wickedly against other people, that somehow you've pushed yourself further away from God's ears. So here's, here's what it says. Here's how the psalmist ends. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry live and they establish a town to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, trouble, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of distress and makes their families like flocks. The uprights see it and are glad and all wickedness stops its mouth. God is a God who is resolutely on the side of those in trouble. But this all begs the question, okay, if prayer matters to the world, if, as we talked about last week, there's plenty of places in, in the Bible that talk about prayer changing things, prayer changing God's mind, having an influence on wor the world events. If prayer changes things, if our active prayer changes things, then what about me? Does my, does my prayer change things? Does God see, hear my prayers? Uh, and so the, uh, this is where we're going into today. Um, do your prayers matter? Do my prayers matter? Little old me. Your belief and your practice of prayer depends on your view of God's activity in the world. And here's the crux of it. If you've come to a view of the world that, that everything's like a life force, a God that's maybe not a personal God, he's maybe not a, a, a person that exists, but he's maybe more like a life force that exists, which is a very old and today also a prevalent worldview. Or if you think God is off in Saturn somewhere, or even further, far away, maybe he doesn't care about this place, maybe he doesn't, doesn't notice it. Or maybe God's watching this place, if he's looking at it, uh, looking at it kind of in horror, but he's decided, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to intervene, I'm going to let things just play out. On a grander scale, if he's watching but not intervening, if you've adopted any of these views of God, maybe because of something you've gone through, maybe because um, someone told you narratives and stories that made you start believing this way, if you believe these things, if that's through your worldview structure, then probably not. Prayer probably, God, God probably doesn't hear your prayers. But if you take the Jewish and Christian view, the distinctively Jewish and Christian view that God is close, he's active, he's working. If you are a co-creator in this world, even if you're the lesser of two parties by far, 
then the answer is going to be yes. Your personal prayers matter. The prayers that you have on your heart matter to God. And we get this most strikingly in Jesus' life. And here's where we need Jesus in the Psalms to help get us here because so much comes at us in life that teaches us that, that our prayers don't matter. But here's where we need Jesus in the Psalms. I mean, think of Jesus as praying. Jesus prayed as if prayer mattered. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed at his time of death. Just read the, the Gospels. He's praying all the time. He prayed when he was tired to pick his disciples, the people who were going to carry on his legacy. He spent all night in prayer as if it mattered. Um, he could have just said, you know, I'll just pick a few. If it works out, if it works out, God's got it. He, did, he didn't treat prayer like that. He prayed as if prayer mattered. He prayed for, he, he told us to pray for workers at one point. This is Matthew 10. He said, pray for workers because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He believed that our prayers are, would equip and send out people. He says, pray for those who persecute you. That, that matters. Pray for those who will believe in me. And at one point, he, his disciples come up to him and they're like, Jesus, we, we, we see that you're able to cast out demons and heal people who are troubled and troubled deeply. And, but we can't do it. We can't get them out. We can't affect that kind of healing. And Jesus said, oh, because this kind of issue only gets resolved with fasting and prayer. So Jesus prayed and taught us that prayer matters, that an active prayer life matters to our life. It changes things. Um, but also his prayer life was a mature prayer life, right? Let's think about this. I'll go a little deeper into Jesus' prayer life just to illustrate this. Jesus had a few unanswered prayers in his life. He prayed with all of his heart for something, and God said no. Um, I pray that all of them, he, all of my followers, would be one, that have unity. I think there's something like 40-some thousand denominations right now of Christianity in the world. That prayer has yet to go answered. Um, Jesus prayed for his 12 disciples. Would you, you know, Father, send me, send me people that would, that would be loyal to me and carry my message forward. And he got Judas. He prays for Simon Peter's faith. In the end, Jesus says, Peter, I pray that your faith may not fail. And Peter's faith, if you know the story, failed miserably. And he prayed for himself, Father, take this cup. I don't want to go through this, but not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus had lots of prayers that he prayed, and it didn't stop him from praying. This obstacle, do my prayers matter? He, he believed it, and that the times, the things that came back at him, which would, would convince him that his prayers, God didn't hear his own personal prayers um, um, he had them, but he prayed anyway. He got over that obstacle. And then, he's, like I was saying, his prayer life is mature. He's able to handle unanswered prayers and yet still pray. And at the same time, there's all sorts of things that he may have needed, but he didn't pray for. This is an interesting thing. You were supposed to pray for everything, right? But there's things Jesus didn't pray for. He didn't pray for John the Baptist to be saved, his cousin. Um, he could have said, God saved John the Baptist, and John the Baptist might have been saved, but he didn't. He, th that's an instance where he stepped back and he trusted that God's mysterious plan would work out in the midst of tragedy. He said, I could, I could pray for a legion of angels to rescue me, but I won't. So this is a mature praying life. He prayed as if prayer mattered, but he also had a mature praying life. He recognized um, that he, he couldn't cajole God, and sometimes in, in God's mystery, things are at work deeper than we can recognize. So Jesus, Jesus prayed and taught us to pray as if prayer mattered. 
And here's where, here's where I think we get some of this. We get to go a little deeper about the, the belief that God hears us, he cares, he sees us deeply. He knows the distress of our soul, Psalms 31 tells us. Think about that. What distress is in your soul? God knows it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. This is one of those interesting verses that you've got to really unpack to get to the deep meaning of. But he's, he's the, Paul is comparing the person who's arrogant and thinks they know they have it all together with the person who's humble and clings on to God. And somehow in that mysterious way, the clinging on to God in our neediness brings us into, into his focus in a mysterious way. We don't know how it works, but this is how the Bible describes it. Um, and in Luke 12, Jesus tells us that God knows you intimately. He knows exactly how many hairs are on your head. And of course, Psalm 139 is the greatest, perhaps, expression of just how carefully God knows you and hears you and is with you. So I'm going to dive as deep down into Psalm 139 today as I can before we pull up and finish this off. Psalm 39 begins with this. God, you have searched me and you know me. Okay, this is, this is the beginning point. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, has searched you. Okay, he knows you. He knows more about you than you probably even know about yourself. Okay, we'll take that in for a moment. The God of the universe searches you. All of your complexity, all of your in, inner thoughts. He, he, he just doesn't know them, but he searches them. That's an active desire to get to know you, okay? You have searched me, Lord, and know me. What kind of knowing? The psalmist doesn't give it to us in this sort of nice, easy package, but I've kind of packaged it up for you today. He knows things about the past about you. He knows things about the present about you, and he knows things about the future about you. Here's the past. The psalmist says, God, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, just as a little side note, this doesn't mean that God has dictated everything that you're going to do in your life. It's just that he knows them. He knows, it's like, a, it's like this Christmas tree over here. There's a dozens, if not hundreds of branches that go up and your life starts at the very beginning at this root and will travel one route up the branch. It's not that God has determined which one. He just knows which one you're gonna take. That's, how that, that's what that means. But listen, your, your eyes, God, saw my unformed body. Before any scanning, before any imagery of getting to know which gender your baby's gonna be, in that secret place, the psalmist says, God saw your unformed body. For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I mean, these, this, if you're open, open, open your eyes and ears if you can to the, the beauty of this teaching. God didn't just sort of stand back and watch you be made. He knit you together. He, I don't know how many people here knit. It takes a lot, right? It's not just, this doesn't happen. He was there putting every single part of you together. Your body, of course, but also your personality. The things that make you you. The things that make you unique. Your fingerprints, but also your spiritual fingerprints. He was putting those together perfectly. How many people just hate the person you are? Don't raise your hand. I'm not exposing. We just like, oh, I just don't like it that I'm like that. God made you like that. He knit you together perfectly. 
And then Psalm says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He knows about your past. He knows you. He sees you. He sees your present. He sees when you sit and when you rise. God, you perceive my thoughts from afar. I love this. I was, I was sitting down on an airplane when I was typing this out. He knew, he knew when I sat down on the airplane. He knew when I got up. I was thinking, thinking through that. That, that he, see, he sees you, he sees close, he watches you, he searches you. He knows when you sit right now and when you rise up, when you get out, when you go, he's going to be watching you and with you. Uh, he's watching when you're sleeping. No, he's not Santa Claus. Not, not that. Uh, but he does watch you. He perceives, and he perceives your thoughts from afar, which doesn't mean he's afar, which means he, your thoughts that are going to come next week, which maybe you don't even know are coming from afar yet, he sees what, what, what they're coming God, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. The psalmist is just searching for all the ways he can say just how close God is. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And I love this because, um, oh, I didn't put this in there. Um, I, I love this uh, because it just, um, it shows us just how close he is. God lays his hand upon you. It, he's close enough to touch you. He knows the future. Before a word is on my tongue, says the psalmist, you, Lord, know it completely. That's just the type of God he is. Such knowledge. And then I love this, because he's like, the psalmist is like, every once in a while, they, they give this sort of, this break, which is like, ah, oh, my brain is exploding right now, because I'm trying to search this truth. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And the psalmist goes into the questions, where is God? And where is God? And these are two questions. You know, where is God? Is he here? Is he heaven? Is he in Saturn? Where in space is God? But also the psalmist is going to go address the question, where is God? Like, God, where have you been? Where are you when I need you? That's a time question. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, to the stars, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, if I go and dive to the bottom of the ocean, you're there. And then this, he's just, he goes into another world of poetry here. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. I can't go anywhere in all of creation where your hand, which touches me, will not guide me along my paths. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It's kind of an interesting thing, an interesting philosophical point. For even darkness is as light to you. And we think about darkness in terms of being in a tunnel, like if you're in a tunnel or in a cave and it's pitch black, God can see you still. His eyes don't get blacked out like ours. But think about darkness in the moral terms. Have you, have you ever existed in a time of darkness where someone has done something to you? Or whether you've entered into that space on your own willingness into a dark time of your life and you think, surely God doesn't want to come here. Or think of the evil, great evils of the world, the great moments of evil, of darkness. That doesn't push God away. That doesn't push his presence out. Somehow, mysteriously, even he's there. That's what the psalmist is saying. And this brings us to the touch of God. 
You hem me in behind and before you. Lay your hand upon me. Your hand will guide me fast. Your right hand will hold me fast. And the psalmist wants to tell us it's like God can touch us. He's got a touch and he's willing to put a circle of protection around you. And he's willing to put his hand and hold you fast. That's what the psalmist is saying. Where is God? This is a time question. Where were you when? But before, before the psalmist goes, this is another brain-shattering remark. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. I love that imagery. You can awake sometimes and feel like, is God with me? Okay, you're still here. And the psalmist just lives that life of God's presence. But then, as most psalms do, we get a bit of multiple personality disorders coming out here. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you, God, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count my enemies. I, I, I laugh at this because it's like, it's such a raw prayer. Like I've been teaching us, we need to have raw praying. And sometimes the psalmists show us just what raw praying looks like. I'm just going to pray with the exact emotion I have uh, on me. And then the psalmist goes, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. It's like, yeah, three verses later, there's a bit of an offensive way right here. <laughs> the psalmist doesn't even know it about himself. Uh, uh, and of course, Jesus comes in and shines so much light on the points of the psalms when the, hum the kind of the anxiousness and the wickedness of the human heart is revealed. And Jesus says, actually, I want you to pray for your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. This does not reflect the heart of God, but, the, but it reflects perfectly sometimes the heart of humans. And this prayer, lead me in the way everlasting, is like a foreshadowing of Jesus' teaching on what it looks like to follow his ways and pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who are your enemies. That's Jesus' way. So the psalm ends and answers a lot of these questions for us. And here's how we sum it all up, just to bring this to an extended conclusion. Why sometimes do I act as if prayer doesn't matter? As if God doesn't see me? As if he's not close and as like, like the psalmist of 139 was saying. Hypothesis one is this. God cannot or will not hear me. Some people go for that. They think that that's what life experience and that's what, the, um, that's what the life has taught them. That God cannot or will not hear but hypothesis two, which I believe is just as strong, I've been laying this out for us, is sometimes we cannot withstand the pain of an active and ever-present God. It's a hard pain to withstand. It is a pain. Because he teaches us that our prayers matter and that we should come to him in active praying. But sometimes it breaks our hearts. And I'm not talking about, when I talk about prayer, I'm not talking about the kind of the abandoning yourself to God, the flow of, I'm just going to let let um, happen what's going to happen. I really have no role in this. But recognizing that the work is in our hands. It's part of what we're called to do. 
It, God puts that work there. And this is prayer, I'll put it this way, prayer is not something that you evolve out of as if you somehow can sort of stop praying. But it is something that you can mature into. And last week I talked about the move from first naivete through enlightenment into second naivete. And this is, this is what I mean. Uh, sometimes we have to, if we're in that position where we're just like, you know what, I'm just going to give up on prayer for a while. And I'm not, I don't do that anymore. Sometimes it's because we cannot withstand the pain of a God who's present and active and gives us work to do. And sometimes it goes poorly for us on this mission. Do I have this here? Yeah. Here's what I'm saying. Prayer matters. Scriptures show it. Jesus believed it. And experience suggests it. Prayer is God's expected work he gives us to do, um, which very well may make a difference in the world. But we're also, friends, on a dangerous mission. The work that we have to do is dangerous. And sometimes we will fall, we will fall to the danger. It's like, it's like a commander in a great battlefield who sends people out on missions. And we go out and we recognize that he's with us, that he's, he's got the bigger picture in view. And sometimes it's dangerous, and sometimes we, we get hurt, and sometimes it goes well, and sometimes we die. It's, it's part of the deal. But he, he, but he asks us to stay rooted in our understanding of who he is, and how close he is, and how much we matter to him. And to do this, we need Jesus. We, we just need to cling on to him to recognize what the pattern looks like. But we also need the Psalms. The Psalms get us there as well. The Psalms keep us rooted in our worldview, teaching us where God is, what he's up to, how to stay abandoned to him. They, t they, they touch our human heart, these Psalms do, but they also show us God's heart for humans. This is what the power of the Psalms do. One author said they establish us in God, these Psalms. And one, one author, another author says that, about the Psalms, the church likes what is old, about the Psalms, not because of their old, but because we're so young. We're so young in our understanding, and we need these Psalms. So, basically, this tr the transition is this. Invitation to the Psalms. This is where we're going to begin. I know that not all of you are over the obstacles to prayer, and that's okay. You can be wherever you are on your journey to prayer. But from this point forward, I'm going to start entering the school of prayer. I'm going to take us in to what it is to establish a praying life, an active praying life, a mature, active praying life. And it begins with the Psalms. It begins with taking them in and learning to uh, help them, to their experience, touch our experience. Um, there are treasures that lie hidden in these Psalms. They help us surrender to God. And my, my, my invitation to you is this. Can you, from this point forward, try to read five Psalms a day? Can you, from now until the end of the, this year, I'm going to give this challenge to us. Can you try to start reading five psalms a day? And this is perfect for Advent and Christmas because of this. Um, Mary, you recognize these characters, Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Elizabeth and Anna, they're going to, they're going to write some beautiful prayers in the Christmas nativity stories in the scriptures. 
They're going to write these prayers, and they're going to be so saturated with the Psalms. It's like they, they had the Psalms just so deeply inside of them that when they write their own Christmas prayers in the Nativity stories, out come the Psalms. I'm going to show us that in the next many weeks. I'm going to challenge us to join them in getting the Psalms so saturated into us that it's like our grammar of our life comes out like the Psalms. Uh, So are you willing to give this a try? Um, a couple weeks ago, I, I had said that, I'd given a different metaphor, that um, I've been preaching on this since September, and if you followed along, um, some of you are like, you jump right in the pool and you're swimming around, you're like, come on, let's go. When are we going to learn how to do this better? And others of you are like, I don't think I can get in there with you, Keith, <laughs> for whatever reason. And others of you are like, I am, I get your towel around you like this on the bench. And you are not going to get in. And so um, my invitation to you is this. If, if you've been listening, if you've been engaged, at this point, um, there should be a growing desire to pray and to, to jump in and swim. Um, and I'm not saying that if you don't have that desire, it's your fault. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that uh, at this point, if you've been following along and you're not like, okay, let's give this a try, then there's, there's something blocking that, that kind of desire. There's a pain, there's an experience, there's an unwillingness that's based probably in some experience. And my invitation to you is don't let that just go dormant. Don't ignore that. Um, address it. See a therapist. Talk with some friends about it. Come talk to me. You can be honest with me. Say, Keith, everything you've said is rubbish. Here's why. I'm okay. Tell me that. Um, but don't just, don't just sit back and let whatever is there just exist. Because if you let it linger too long without addressing it, if you just shove it away, um, it will stay there. It doesn't go away. And it will be there for as long as, as you have it there. So my invitation to you is if you're not jumping in the pool yet, it's okay. You don't have to be. Um, and if you're willing to, for the next six months to watch, watch the, the community swim, that's okay too. Um, there's no shame in that whatsoever. We're all in different places. Um, but from now on, at, from this point forward, we're going we're gonna to start doing some laps. We're going to start teaching you the strokes. We're going to jump in and we're going uh, to teach, teach you the school of prayer. And it begins with the psalms and how important the psalms are. Let me finish with this. Some of you may know Eugene Peterson. He's the translator of the Message Bible. Uh, great pastor, wise human being, search his last few hours of his life on the internet. His family are telling some amazing stories of him sort of communicating with people in the room who no one was there. And his last words were, okay, let's go. This is amazing stuff. Um, but Eugene Peterson um, just passed away this year. And I wanted to finish this, this chunk of this series of prayer off with some of the words from his son, Leif Peterson, that he spoke at his father's funeral. Here's what his son said. And I think it just captures perfectly um, some of what I've been trying to say. Leif says, it's almost laughable how you fooled them, father. How for 30 years, every week, you made them think you were saying something new. They thought you were a magician in your long black robe, hiding so much in your ample sleeves, always pulling something fresh and making them think it was just for them. They didn't know how simple it all was. 
They were blind to your secret. For 50 years, you would steal into my room, Father, at night and whisper softly to my sleeping head. And it's the same message over and over. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. As an act of response to this God, every week we come and we take a piece of bread and we dip it into the juice and we take it into ourselves and offer whatever prayers on our hearts, prayers of anger, prayers of abandonment, whatever is there, we offer them to God. So friends, the invitation is open, uh, the table is set, and everyone is welcome.